0: Hello, Dr. Rajan. It's great to have you on Network Capital. Through this podcast, we try and demystify why leaders do what they do, particularly focusing on the career choices and mental models so that uh, we can all learn from them and we can share some of these principles at scale so that uh, others are able to employ them in their life and see where this goes. So could you tell us by who you are and what do you do today?
1: Well, today I'm... uh The chairman of a company called E Cube Investment Advisors. And uh, this is a a business that I have set up with uh, some colleagues uh, from my previous stint at the Tata Group. Uh, So, the three co founders, all of us have worked together at the Tata's. And subsequently, we've inducted other friends and colleagues. Um, The idea at E Cube is really to establish a platform that will advocate powerfully for the adoption of ESG practices in corporate India. ESG, of course, refers to environment, social, and governance, and this is a big new thematic across the world, principally driven by uh, concerns around climate change, and in India specifically concerns around corporate governance. Uh, So that's what takes up most of my time these days. Uh, I also have some pursuits on the side, including pretensions to being an author, uh, the occasional article in the media, and a book I'm working on right now on corporate responsibility. Uh, Prior to doing all of this, of course, I spent many years with the Tatars, which was, uh, till 2018, my first and only career, and uh, very privileged to have had... um, a terrific uh, innings there. Uh, now, of course, I'm trying to do something a little different. Um,
0: um, I've read your book, uh, The Brand Custodian, uh, my years with uh, with the Tatars. And uh, I feel that in addition to being a really thorough book about what goes on in a corporate or what uh, the way this group is structured, I thought that uh, it highlighted some of your career dilemmas, the mentorship you received both early on and as you became more senior. For example, you speak about an instance when you, uh, you said that I felt uh, it fair to point out to Mr. Ratan Tata that I had not done an MBA and had very little business related experience. His answer will remain etched in my mind. All I needed to succeed in the corporate world, he said, was good common sense. Tell me more about this. What what did what did you understand uh, with this line? And now with uh, the benefit of hindsight, do you still believe that good common sense is perhaps the most critical skill?
1: I would um, completely endorse that perspective. Um, obviously, with professional qualifications, uh, training. Um, the exposure to an academic environment perhaps you feel empowered and you uh, pick up some of the tools that can help you to succeed Uh, and an MBA obviously in the world of management general management particularly uh, can always be very useful but I think what uh, uh, was the message that Mr. Tata left with me and which I have seen through my life is that it's not enough Uh, it is not even necessary, uh, and it is certainly not sufficient to have an MBA. Uh, and so you can get by, but what is very important, I think, is uh, astute judgment uh, and an ability to seek out answers that you may not have, and A, to be willing to acknowledge what you don't know, and therefore to be willing to seek out answers that you may not have, uh, and B, uh, risk-taking ability uh, to some extent, but also a passion to learn more that leads you on a quest to find those answers that you require. And I think over time, uh, what you see with developments, particularly in technology and uh, the whole domain of artificial intelligence, machine learning, there's going to be so much that machines are going to do for human beings. Uh, that human beings on their own will be incapable of doing that you're necessarily going to have to reach out for help and support to broader communities or to leverage technology to help you and so it brings me back to the point that you need to know where to look for answers or how to look for answers but you don't need to know everything yourself and i think that's essentially what mr Tata was pointing out and over the years with him i, I saw this for instance in the early 2000s, one of the largest investments that the Tata Group had ever made up to that point was in an industry that was completely new for all of us, and indeed for most Indians. Uh, this was the whole space of mobile technology in telecoms. Uh, India had been really used to uh, fixed-line technology. And suddenly with all the developments on GSM technology, on CDMA technology, on 2G, on edge networks, 3G subsequently, very fast-moving technological changes. And everything you uh, needed to understand about that space, you had to pick up literally on the job. There was no MBA in telecoms at that point of time. And that taught me that there's so much that you can learn, providing A, you have a willingness to accept what you don't know, uh, and secondly, an uh, inquisitive mind that leads you on the search for answers. And if you have those two, then it makes up for any potential lack of knowledge or information through academic qualifications and degrees and so on.
0: Um, in, in your book, there is uh, you talk about uh, your career uh, and the Tata Group extensively. But, uh, of course, this wasn't the only book you've written. You've written several others. For example, the global environmental politics around uh, when you were planning to become an academic. So, tell us about career planning. How much of your career is planned? How much is serendipity? And what is luck in your dictionary?
1: So I forget who it was who uh, said that famous... uh, Uh, statement about luck that you know people can make their own luck uh, or that you need to be in a position where you're prepared to receive the good fortune that may come your way Uh, there is very little that happens without some level of planning even if it is intuitive or it is subliminal but there's usually a level of preparedness that is required for you to be able to seize the moment or seize the opportunity uh, but that said, I think I have been extremely lucky. Um, I I do think uh, fate has sort of opened up possibilities which I wouldn't prior to those possibilities coming my way have even imagined or thought about. Uh, so the the question on whether to go into academia when I finish my doctoral uh, work at Oxford University, obviously the first. Uh, and most uh, interesting uh, line of of movement in my career was to take up a a job as uh, an assistant professor or to teach. Uh, But I was also conscious that a lot had changed in my home country of India in the five years that I had been away doing my master's and doctorate in England. And I wanted to also understand what those changes meant for a person like me. And those changes largely revolved around economic reforms. And I thought the best place to get that understanding and learning would be the corporate sector. So I also took a punt at uh, you know, joining the Indian corporate sector. And again, happenstance, for the first and perhaps last time, the Tata Administrative Service, which is the general management uh, cater for the Tata Group, uh, actually advertised on campus in Oxford. And I happened to see this advertisement Um, asking interested candidates from universities like Oxford to write into the Tatas if they wanted a general management career in India. So a little bit on a whim, I just wrote in and uh, then followed a rapid series of events. They invited me for an interview. Uh, I was interviewed, as it happened, by uh, my future boss, Ratan Tata, who chaired the T.S. Election committee that year, and things sort of fell into place. So I was planning to explore an academic career, but I did want to understand how the world was changing and how India in particular was changing. And this opportunity to work in the corporate sector landed almost uh, uh, on my lap without too much effort on my part. Once I made the choice of joining the corporate sector, I thought I'd give it two years. And I said in two years, uh, two things will happen. One, I will understand whether this is a career that's Uh, something I'm enjoying. Uh, Two, I was also uh, clear that my book would get published in that period of time because after my doctoral dissertation, I'd sent it into the Oxford University Press and they'd accepted it for publication. So there were some edits that the book needed and I knew my book would come out and that would, in a sense, burnish my credentials uh, as somebody with pretensions to academia. And if I needed to, I could bail out in two years' time and still get the academic job that I might otherwise have immediately gone into right after the doctorate. As it happened, those two years in the corporate sector turned out to be wonderful years of learning. Also, years of great change for the Tatas. And I was uh, very privileged to uh, find a role in the office of the chairman of Ratan Tata, which gave me a bird's eye view of all the significant changes that Tatas themselves were going through But through that vantage point, also the changes that corporate India was going through. And at that point, I decided that this was a career I was truly enjoying. Uh, There was a lot of value that I felt I could add. And I just decided to stay on. Uh, And that was it. That was the end of my academic uh, uh, efforts. Though now, perhaps late in life, one might potentially go back into some kind of academic environment. Uh, certainly the next book I'm working on has some level of academic content drawing on a lot of my experience in in the corporate world.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I feel that uh, your your academic training uh, as then, you were one of the first people in India to really think through issues of uh, social responsibility, environmental sensitivity. And now when it has become much more mainstreamed, I feel that uh, you can be one of our guides in taking us forward because I noticed that a lot of people talk about um, social responsibility, but somehow it doesn't translate into action, perhaps because people aren't able to think through issues. Do you, do you see that as well? Or... Uh, Do you feel that uh, these are early days for the field in general?
1: I think in India, there are um, a set of corporates that have been uh, very committed to social change and to playing their part in supporting it. Uh, And of course, one of the reasons I joined the Tatars was because of the incredible reputation the Tatars had uh, for supporting a lot of uh, Uh, social causes, Uh, the Tata Trust, the charities that the Tatars run, in particular, um, I think must have supported pretty much uh, every mainstream large organization in the nonprofit sector that has made uh, valuable contributions over the decades. And this is something that Tatars were doing from the 1930s onwards, it is not something recent. Of course, in India, the regulation has also started pushing the envelope on this. Uh, so the amendments to the Companies Act in 2013 uh, brought forth this legislation on CSR, which made India pretty much the only country in the world to actually demand and require of corporates that uh, met a size and scale test to contribute a small percentage, but nevertheless a meaningful percentage, 2% of their net profits to CSR. I think that action has also now elevated the debate on corporate social responsibility across corporate India. Uh, The requirement that independent directors be part of the CSR committee of the board, I think, has also ensured that conversations are no longer about uh, doing things in the social side uh, as and when the promoters feel like it, if and when they have profits. But now it's a requirement, and it is something that is getting tested by the independent directors against clear plans and clear targets to ensure that there is actually a constructive contribution that corporates are able to make. So I I think there's been a fair amount of uh, beneficial impact of the CSR legislation, and now many, many more corporates, I think, are sensitive to the subject and willing and able to do something uh, about it. Uh, In the process also, we've seen that the whole environmental agenda Uh, given that it has significant social uh, impact also, uh, is also moving uh, the discussion and the debate forward. And all of this is now getting integrated uh, under the the broader moniker, if you will, of sustainability. So to run a sustainable enterprise, to be a neighbor of choice, uh, to attract uh, consumers who who respect you as a brand, uh, who think that you're a brand with purpose, All of this now requires corporates to demonstrate social conscience, a commitment to upholding the rules and regulations and environmental issues, and obviously to be well-governed and to demonstrate that all this matters to them, and this is something they're willing to invest serious resources in. So I think I've been very uh, pleased with the kind of uptake that corporate India has seen. Obviously, there's much more that we need to do because for many... Indian corporates, it is relatively recent and new, but I think there are very good role models. Tata's, of course, being one of them.
0: And for the Tatas, uh, you also talk about the fact that it's unusually structured for a for a for a corporate. And uh, could you briefly talk the uninitiated through the structure of the Tata Group, um, and uh, explain how you were able to uh, do a wide spectrum of roles in the Uh, in the time that you were there. And then I also want to talk about uh, the process of writing this book, uh, because you were a consummate insider who had worked with uh, all the chairmen, would love your take on uh, just the ethos of Tata Group and uh, how you navigated from point A to point B. And uh, was it easy, was it difficult Uh, in terms of culture and other things, what were some of the changes that you were able to directly drive that you're most proud of? Long question, but if you could answer some parts of it.
1: Sure. So let me start with the structure. It is a very unique structure, particularly for an organization that does believe in the profit motive and is certainly a capitalist organization, so to speak. So at the level of the holding company, which is a company called Tata Sons, um, this company is actually principally held uh, by the Tata charities to the extent of almost two-thirds of its equity. Um, In that sense, it is a very unusual structure. Um, Around the world, you will find situations where uh, trusts may hold control of a company, But usually those are trusts which have uh, a tax-saving element in them uh, or a way of protecting succession uh, from one generation to the next. But very rarely would you find a situation where the trusts are actually charities whose sole mandate is to actually give away the wealth they receive to support uh, good social causes. And the Tata charities are so mandated to really support uh, good social causes. And over the years, they have resulted uh, through their contributions in the creation of some of India's best known institutions. uh, The Tata Memorial Hospital, for instance, or the Tata Medical Center for Cancer Research, uh, or the National Center for the Performing Arts, or a range of uh, academic institutions, including the Tata Institute of Social Science, Uh, the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research and so on. So this model of ownership substantially vesting in charities truly committed to the public good at the level of the holding company for companies that downstream are otherwise committed to the profit motive, and many of them are also listed companies with a commitment to create shareholder value, is a very unusual structure but what it has done for the tatas in in the decades uh, uh, over the decades uh, has been i think to create uh, a huge level of employee commitment uh, the sense that the average employee would have that the harder you work the more profits you create for your company the greater the dis- dividends that then get distributed upstream from your company to tata sons and through tata sons to the tata charities which will then go towards supporting good social causes, that gives you a huge sense of fulfillment that working hard and creating profits for this kind of enterprise is meaningful for you as a person because it's not just going into the pockets of a promoter or trying to enrich a narrow group of shareholders, but in fact, it's going to a wider community indeed to all of Indian society. I think that has been hugely motivational for Tata employees over the decades. And I think some of the dramatic uh, demonstrations of loyalty and commitment, including the ones that you saw during the 2008 terror attacks, when employees of the Taj, uh, which is part of the Indian Hotels Company, and Tata company, uh, who stayed at their place of work, helped the guests, uh, rescued many of them during the terror attack, and some of these employees in fact died in the process when they were shot by the terrorists, I think demonstrates the kind of passion, commitment that many of these employees have had to the idea of Tata, to what you really stand for, to who you really are as a corporate. So I think this unique ownership structure has been tremendously important in allowing Tatas to attract some of the best talent, to retain that talent over time, and to continue to do good work in society to gain the trust of their stakeholders, particularly their consumers. So I think this has been uh, uh, very, very important for Tata's in the revolution. It's also been relevant in, therefore, uh, spreading a, a pretty common set of values and cultures across the Tata companies. Now, we have uh, over 100
0: Tata operating companies. Which must be very difficult, I imagine, right? Because this what you walked us through plus the complicated nature in which this is arranged. Sharing or spreading a common set of values can be hard, I think?
1: It can be hard and therefore hugely dependent on the kind of um, values that are set right at the top, uh, the way in which people walk the top, uh, mm-hmm. the efforts that are made in creating the organizational framework that allows you to cascade those values across both your existing businesses and new businesses that you may either set up or acquire and you will recollect a lot of the Tata growth in recent years has been through acquisitions and therefore a lot of emphasis on communication of those values to new companies and new employees who may not have been familiar with your group history all of that is critical Um, so that's again something I talk about in the group the fact that you need to invest hugely in communication, and so much that flows from the tone at the top. If you get that wrong, as uh, several Indian corporates in recent years have demonstrated, then everything can fall apart very fast. But if you can get it right, then the brand equity that the organization uh, gets over time uh, is huge and helps you to navigate through crises. Every organization will go through crisis and setbacks. But the question is, do you have a strong enough, very powerful brand that allows you to march through those crises and sometimes come out even stronger because broadly your stakeholders have conviction that you're committed to doing the right thing. And I think for uh, most of their history, Tata's have demonstrated uh, the right tone at the top, the right kind of commitment, the right values, and have been fairly successful in cascading this across the organization. We have had issues, we've had bad eggs, we've had managers who've not stayed the course, uh, and we have paid a price occasionally for that. But I think broadly there's been a conviction that more often than not, we've tried to do the right thing at Tata's over the years.
0: But talk to us about your role. Uh, Your book is called The Brand Custodian, and you have had a wide spectrum of roles within the company, working intimately with different uh, leaders and chairpersons. What, has been, what have been some of the most memorable experiences of your career there? And uh, what specific lessons did you learn? I ask because some of these lessons could help our listeners think through some of the important uh, career choices they make.
1: Uh, well, I think in Tata's, uh, I was obviously uh, very privileged to be part of the Tata administrative service. Uh, and the thought process behind the creation of the Tata Administrative Service in the mid-1950s very much patterned on the model of the Indian Administrative Service, and very similar sort of approach to grooming talent. Uh, yeah. There was a belief that in large organizations, whether it was the Indian Civil Service or it was the Tata Group, uh, you needed to induct people fairly early on in their um, uh, in their careers. Uh, give them the exposure to various businesses. Uh, Typically, in many cases, also give them exposure to senior leadership so that at a very early stage in your career, you understand the kinds of challenges and dilemmas that corporate leaders would typically face. And then over time, keep uh, an eye on the careers of these people, keep grooming them until you get a significant uh, bench strength of uh, potential leaders for your various businesses. So similarly in the government of India, you start by grooming people as uh, uh, subdivisional magistrates, and then they become collectors. Once they've seen uh, life in the field, they go into the capital or into the capital city in Delhi. They work with secretaries to the government. They work with ministers. Uh, and over time, they become ready to take on the senior most roles of themselves. Uh, so, in, in some ways, my own career followed a similar trajectory, though uh, my early years were a little unusual in that instead of moving around companies as much as some of my compatriots in the Tata Ministry of Service did, I really worked with one person and that was Ratan Tata. So, 12 years with Ratan Tata on the trot, uh, then uh, a, a couple of uh, diversions, I was the managing director of one of our telecom companies in the listed space. Uh, I then set up uh, a private equity fund at Tata Capital. And then I moved back to Tata Sons to work four more years with the next chairman, uh, Cyrus Mistry. And then the last two years before I left Tata's, uh, I was again part of Tata Sons working with yet another chairman. So uh, a lot of my career in Tata's Uh, I was very privileged to be uh, able to spend it in the group center at Tata Sons. But I did have uh, a four-year stint outside in private equity and telecoms. Uh, And in between, obviously, while I was at Tata Sons, I also uh, was given uh, very good exposure on a number of boards. So I think the, the thought process behind a vehicle like the Tata Administrative Service of grooming talent by giving you exposure at a young age to multiple different roles, multiple functions, uh, is something that's very meaningful, particularly in uh, a world today when there's just so much information. uh, You can't be master necessarily of a domain, but you need to learn to work in teams, you need to learn to carry people with you, and you need to have a curiosity about all that's changing in the world that's very dynamic around you. I think all of that and more the Tata's were able and and willing to offer somebody like me. And uh, I was obviously extremely grateful for that.
0: Mukund, talk to me about your stint with private equity. A lot of our listeners are really fascinated by the world of investing. And you're an academic-turned-general manager-turned-leader. How was your dalliance with private equity? What did you learn? What shocked you, surprised you, inspired you? I think you were really rising fast Uh, at that time of your career, as you continue to do today. But I want to really get into your thought process at that point in time.
1: What was fascinating about uh, private equity was the opportunity to uh, invest in a range of companies across different sectors uh, and um, to really get into the depths of what are the key drivers of success in different industries so we inve- We invested uh, in the budget hotel space which is bis- just beginning to take off in India uh, in the company that uh, owns the ginger hotels in India for instance and when we compared with what was happening in China where some of the large budget hotel chains had several thousand properties and in India ginger which is the largest had uh, just over a dozen <laughs> you could see the huge difference that uh, these industries were seeing in terms of growth across markets. Uh, We invested in spaces like EPC. uh, We invested in satellite communications. Uh, So very different industries and the opportunity to get into the real depths of what drives success in each of those industries. So in terms of learning, I think private equity is a phenomenal learning ground for anybody who has an interest in, in something like this. Uh, The thing that you uh, do need to ensure, though, is uh, that you've gone into a large amount of detail before you actually make the investment decision. Uh, You are actually managing capital on behalf of what are called LPs or limited partners. These are third parties that have decided to back you as a private equity investor because they believe you will marshal the capital well and deliver a significant return. Uh, Typically in India, private equity returns are expected to be of the order of uh, internal rates of return of 20% and more. And that's typically when you get compensated. If you don't deliver at least the hurdle rate, uh, you will not get sufficiently compensated through what is called carried interest. So to deploy capital smartly, you need to make sure you're making the right calls. And that requires a huge amount of what is called due diligence. Uh, Typically, you would work with some of the best agencies, uh, some of the big four, for instance, on the audit side, will help you to analyze an investment situation. But a lot of focus also has to go into ensuring that the people you're going to invest behind, the promoters and the management, are really deserving of the capital and will uh, be committed to uh, the milestones that they may tell you about Uh, pre-investment, and that you can work with with good chemistry and the right kinds of shared values to ensure that they will deliver on their promises. And that, I think, is the hardest part, Uh, ensuring there's the right chemistry and there are shared values, and you don't end up getting misled or taken for a ride in the medium term. There are enough people in India, as in any other market, who the minute you show capital before them, will promise to do everything, they'll walk backwards, they'll turn themselves upside down to deliver uh, on promises. But once the capital received, uh, whether they actually do all that they promised is a very different issue. So uh, even today in my ESG uh, proposition, I think the most important element is promoter commitment. Can you trust the word of the person sitting opposite you? And I think that's one thing one saw in private equity, that you really needed to earn the trust, but also have mechanisms to figure out whether you could believe the counterparty and take the risk entailed before you make the investment. The other thing I saw in private equity in India is so many young people who had got into it, some of them uh, via business school and then a stint with a management consultant. Right. The problem was many of them lacked industry experience. So it's one thing to be very good at Excel spreadsheets and to have spent a few years working on the tut- under the tutelage of a senior partner in bain and Company or BCG or McKinsey. It's quite another to suddenly be uh, a principal or an associate in a private equity fund sitting opposite a very wise promoter and actually trying to tell them how they should run their business. Uh, many promoters don't take kindly to that. And particularly if you don't have industry experience, then you can actually end up making mistakes. And then you don't actually earn the trust of the person sitting on the opposite side of the table. And I saw that in many instances. And uh, therefore, one of the things that we are trying to do differently in my new avatar in this company is essentially hiring a lot of people who've had decades of experience in industry. Because a bit like the point I made about an MBA, there is no substitute to real experience. You can read as much as you want, you can have been to the best business schools, have spent a few years with smart talent in management consultancies, but there is no substitute for actually understanding what makes organizations tick, uh, what allows success to happen in industries, uh, and to get into the details of those with real experience behind you. So if you're a youngster in network capital, as a member who's trying to figure out what to do next and private equity is looming large as a potential option. If you can, try and get some real world experience before you jump into this, because it is a very attractive space to be in. It can be hugely remunerative, but the ones who succeed I've seen are the ones who, I think, have that ability to apply judgment and usually, though not necessarily, usually judgment drawn from practical experience it's
0: a precious advice uh uh oh, just uh, moving on you know um wherever there are people there is politics and uh, i don't want to draw upon any specific instance so i'll let you talk about the fact that how do you deal with the uh, conflict of politics at work um are there some mental models or principles that you've uh, Used to navigate uh, such situations, and uh, what has been challenging about it?
1: So maybe it's a good time to mention another thing that Mr. Tata would frequently tell me, uh, which has also stayed in, in my mind over the years. Um, he, he'd always say, put yourself in the other person's shoes. And, um, you know, over the years, I've seen that When you try and do that, and when you try and equip yourself with as much information as may be available about the context in which others are operating, it then allows you to figure out, A, how you might behave yourself if you were in that situation, and to compare or contrast that with behavior you may be seeing, and B, try and figure out what might actually work. Uh, if you're trying to find a solution to the situation of conflict. Um, And it's it's very interesting. Um, So many times I've seen people react spontaneously uh, to a conflict or a problem, uh, simply on the basis of how they are feeling and how they are reacting on the spur of the moment. But you ask them to go away and think about Potentially the context of the other person or the other organization or the the way in which the situation has unfolded. And sometimes you come back with very different reactions uh, with the benefit of patience and time. And uh, an understanding that maybe there are things that are driving behavior that they hadn't anticipated. And now given a second chance, they might react very differently. So I think it's always very important in any conflict situation to try and put yourself in the other person's shoes and try and see if uh, there is perhaps a different way of tackling things. What are the options before you? And then select the one that seems to have uh, the lowest costs for all concerned uh, and perhaps has the highest probability of, of success. I've seen that happen with uh, conflicts that we had in the Tatars with government, conflicts we've had with outgoing employees who, uh, in some cases, turned rogue. Uh, So many cases where I felt that with a little bit more information, with a little bit more discussion, with an effort to try and get a bit more consensus, with a willingness on people's part to put themselves in the other person's shoes, so much more might have been achieved. Uh, in my book, I also talk about the very, very sad conflict that took place towards the end of my career in Tata's, yeah. between people I had huge admiration for Ratan Tata and Cyrus Mistry, and I believe that one of the problems uh, that existed uh, at the time the two fell out with each other was the fact that there weren't enough people around who could provide more information who could provide a context to how they were seeing each other and potentially to try and bring them to a win-win uh, solution that would perhaps have uh, resulted in us avoiding all the litigation and conflict that we've seen in the subsequent years. And it's been very clear that uh, uh, there have been issues uh, on all fronts and nobody has come out of this a winner. Unfortunately, everyone the Tata Group, employees, Mr. Mistry, uh, Mr. Tata, have all <laughs> suffered hugely as a result of this conflict. And one just wishes that uh, some of the advice I received early on in my career had been um, more broadly available to these people to find a resolution. Yeah,
0: uh, Just to follow up on that, when one finds oneself in a seemingly uh, irreconcilable debate or a conflict of interest or a situation where you know you just can't solve or seem to solve the matter Um, what have what what should one do in such a situation
1: I think it's going to be a function of uh, what stage of your own evolution you might be in Um, there is always the ability to say no (laughs) and to walk away right Uh, in any negotiation for instance uh, the strongest weapon that is worth having is the ability to say no and to walk away absolutely Uh, so similarly in a conflict ridden situation if there is no positive uh, outcome that is possible uh, sometimes you have to take it on your chin and move on Uh, Sometimes you may want to fight and you may decide that, look, I'm going to give it my best shot. I'm going to deploy resources. It's going to take a lot of my mental energy, my emotional energy, but I'm going to do what I think is right. My values will not allow me to do it differently. And the other party is not willing to bend or give way or to concede or to find a solution. So... I'm going to do it. it, could be whatever, going to court, it could be suing someone. Uh, in the case of countries, it can be going to war. <laughs> uh, and sometimes in uh, people's lives, you reach that point when you think you have no other choice. And at that point, I think it's still worthwhile stepping back one last time and looking at your own internal mental makeup, your own sense of who you are and what you stand for, and to decide, is this worth it? Uh In my book, I talk about it, a much sort of more uh, uh, sort of normal level, nothing very uh, grand uh, choices I had to make at different points in my career. One time in in the telecom space where I had significant differences uh, with a counterpart. And it eventually resolved itself with me walking away. so at, at at points of time you have to do that. You have to decide that this is not worth the hassle, or other people will decide for you that it's not worth the uh, emotional aggravation, the discomfort that's being created, and one or the other party has to give way. So there will be times when you have to do that, but you have to find the strength in yourself to decide what you really want to do, uh, and you know what what this means for the rest of your life, for your career, and so on. So at a younger age, I think emotions run high. Uh, Often you will look back 10, 15 years later and think maybe you should have done things differently. But listen, at at the end of it, there is no right or wrong answer. Life gives you chances. Life sometimes takes them away. And you have to go through all of that. I cannot think of a single person that I've admired who's not been through a period when they've had huge amount of personal anxiety, uh, distress, and even felt that they've been treated wrongly or badly uh, there's nobody who's had just positive experiences right through so each of us will face that and look within yourself for the answers and ultimately you will have the strength to come through if you know really who you are and what you stand for
0: this is precious advice uh my last question is on your wife who i deeply admire and uh You know, the the way both of you have supported each other's career is an inspiration for all of us. Could you just like uh, very briefly uh, walk us through uh, the principles that uh, both of you have employed to support each other personally and professionally? Uh, Because one theme we study is power couples. And I think uh, both you and Somya stand out uh, among the top ones we've uh, we've hosted or interviewed.
1: So, uh, what is it you want me to uh, outline?
0: (laughs) Uh, Essentially, some of the principles that you've employed to make this work. Because uh, you've (laughs) talked about the book, we've met in London as well uh, to discuss this briefly. You moving to Singapore, and or she moving to a different country, and figuring out the long distance bit, but keeping the principles of the partnership really strong.
1: So it's very interesting. I think, particularly in the last uh, decade. Uh, essentially from the time I moved into private equity um, and she decided to set up on her own um, what is today India's largest independent family office. I think both of us have been in a similar kind of space of financial services to an extent. And uh, one question people have often had is why don't you two just work with each other and support each other? Uh, And I think early on in our uh, our, uh, journeys, we decided that Uh, (laughs) We we both are Aryans. we can be hot-blooded, we're very passionate about what we do, and we both felt that the last thing we wanted to do is to encroach on each other's professional space. Uh, We were both ambitious and we wanted to keep a little bit of distance between what each of us does. Uh, At the same time, uh, we wanted to make sure we were there for each other. Uh, So as you correctly mentioned, there was a point of time when uh, we were in different countries, uh, uh, not not so long after we got married, uh, but it was important for her career that she made that investment, and um, I knew that I had to continue in Mumbai, uh, working with my then boss Ratan Tata because there was so much that was happening and changing in Tata's, and I, I didn't want to give up my career at that point. So neither of us made a sacrifice. We both said, let's give it some time and see how it goes. So I think there's been that respect for each other's ambitions, uh, determination that we would support each other right through. And now that we are in similar domains, we consult each other for advice, we consult each other for ideas. But uh, we're very clear that we don't want to be uh, working on the same sets of issues um, and being part of the same business, because then it would be a nightmare. We'd be bringing all our professional challenges into our personal space at home. And the personal space is something that is precious. Uh, we needed that to be untainted with professional challenges, and there were inevitably going to be many of those. So I think as a, as a couple at that, that work, uh, my advice to uh, all of you would be give each other the respect, uh, value the ambitions that you have, because each of us wants to prove something in our own lives to ourselves. Uh, without having to take permission or having to take a concession from someone else. Try and keep your personal space untainted and then give each other the best of your wisdom and your learning so that you support each other. That would be uh, my uh, my advice.
0: This has been uh, fascinating, Dr. Rajan. Thank you so much for your time. We look forward to a follow-up conversation very soon. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much.